You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's episode of Plenary Session, you're in for a bonus episode. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience, and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate. And if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ, and this is the new HQ we've moved down the hill with Dr. Talal Halal. Talal has been a regular on this podcast, dare I say. You've been with us uh, on a couple episodes, I think. Once we talked about the MRD paper, and then once when you were in Portland, we, uh, we did an episode with you. Talal, it's great to have you back on Plenary Session. Thank you. Thank you, Vinay. Very, very nice to be back. Soon you're going to be a professor. You're going to be assistant professor of medicine at, now we can say it, the University of Mississippi. Correct, yes. It's an exciting time. It is. Pretty stressful, too. But, uh, yeah, two months from now I should be, I should be heading out there. Uh, yes, you should be. And actually, maybe it'll be one month from now because we have to release this podcast when the paper comes out, not a minute sooner. Oh, right, yeah. About a month and a half, then. A month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, let's just jump right in. I was reading on Twitter. This is something that Dr. Amanda Walker at Dr. A.J. Walker says. So she's a radiation oncologist. My takeaway was that RT is a very cost-effective therapy. This is sometimes overlooked. Example, TVEC's approval. TVEC was based on a durable response rate of 16% in comparison with a 2% durable response rate for GMCSF. The control arm of that study, which was a registration study for the US FDA, was not RT, which would have made sense since it is an available therapy. So what was she getting at? I think she was getting at this idea that there are some randomized control trials that lead to drug approval that use control arms that are not the standard of care. They're beneath the standard of care. So she was saying that in melanoma, we wouldn't have given GMCSF. That wasn't a standard of care. We would have radiated those lesions, and we would have had probably perhaps even a better durable response rate than TVEC. Now, mm-hmm. this was something that caught your interest. How long ago did you start to get interested in this question of what the control arm was in randomized trials? Um, I remember the exact day I thought of this idea, actually. It was, um, it was melanoma-related, too. Shut and up. it oh, was... Wow. It was when the pembro, uh, pembrolizumab adjuvant trial ah, came out. The Alex Egomont study against nothing observation. Right. Yes. Pembro versus observation, and and you know, we I actually had a few patients that I was treating uh, with nivolumab in the adjuvant setting, mm-hmm. and this was after the trial of nevo versus ipi. Right. Adjuvant setting, you know, and so that seemed odd to me. Why why are we doing pembro versus observation in the adjuvant setting? And, and, you know, we've seen this a lot. I think, you know, if you think about it, the, the, the other, op, the other uh, examples was the, the clarambucil control arm for all the CLL trials. You know, I think then, you know, you kind of think about wh- how often does this happen and, and why. Um, 
and so that's that's where I started thinking about how can we how can we evaluate this in an, in an empiric fashion. Mm. I got in touch with you, and and, and we kind of hashed it out. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was that tweet. That that seminal tweet, and when yeah. you say you started to get interested in this happening, what you mean is when a new, costly, trendy anti-cancer drug is tested in a randomized controlled trial against a comparator that is something that really we're not using anymore. That was something that was already defeated by something else. Is that fair to say? Correct. Yep. The so-called straw man control. Right. Right. I mean, the chlorambucil example is is. And I remember the the Abrutinib trial coming out versus chlorambucil, and and I have never used chlorambucil throughout my fellowship. And I don't, you know, I talk to some of my attendings here, and they they haven't used it in in, in, in it probably close to a decade sometimes. Yeah, and, I think that's my experience so, as well. Yeah. So you kind of wonder why why is it used as a control arm there, um, and how often does this happen? So, you know, it's not just costly toxic therapies that are being approved. It's also uh, even maybe not necessarily toxic or very costly therapies, but, but you still don't really know, is this really better than what we are using now? Mm-hmm. When you when you do something like observation or placebo, um, when clearly this is not what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So you decided to look into this, and you and a colleague at, at Scottsdale looked into it for I think uh, for for a bit, and then uh, and then we started to talk about this issue, because I right. had been tweeting probably angrily on this topic, uh, <laughs> uh, and now just out today, uh, which is today is May second, two thousand and nineteen. That's uh, that's not when we're recording it, but that's the day we're going to be putting this out today mm-hmm. on JAMA Oncology readers. At last, their curiosity has been sated. You have published an analysis of control arm quality in randomized clinical trials leading to anti-cancer drug approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And so this is the culmination of your effort to quantify something that had hitherto been anecdotal. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. All right. So take listeners through it. What do we need to know about this paper? What, what have you found? So uh, we we looked at and you know I I have to be honest here I, I kind of looked at some of your previous papers on how you go about doing these analyses you know I think um, the concept is similar you look at the FDA website uh, and uh, you know the approvals that are listed there by date and you kind of you know take this sample of the last five years or ten years or whatever it is you feel is necessary um, and. And, and they list there, every single drug approval, um, what the trial they based it on is, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's two trials. So the approval for, you know, uh, daratumumab, for example, mm-hmm. in mu- multiple myeloma was based on this European trial, this U.S. trial. And so we took all these trials for all these drug approvals over the last five years, uh, January 2013 through July of 2018, um, and we um, we looked at them. Uh, so we disqualified, we eliminated single arm studies, and we only kept randomized clinical trials. Um, and we basically looked through every single randomized clinical trial that led to uh, an FDA approval. Um, sometimes uh, these uh, trials were, like I said, 
two led to one approval or, uh-huh. or sometimes it's one. Usually it's just one that they cite. Yeah. Um, we extracted data from every single trial, including when it was done. Uh, accrual dates was very important. Um, how many patients were on there? Where it was ran? Is it U.S.? Is it international? What was the primary endpoint? Um, and we kind of basically charted all of that uh, in a spreadsheet. And then the second part was a difficult part, which is where I kind of talked to you about it and trying to figure out what was the most objective way to try and actually say this was a uh, suboptimal control arm in this yeah. trial. Yeah. And what did um, we? And 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 uh, I guess before we get to that, let me just highlight a few things. Um, mm-hmm. You you put it nicely. We excluded single arm studies, so all those drugs that come to market based on uncontrolled studies, typically with the primary endpoint of objective response rates and some DOR. Um, And that was about a third of drug approvals. We're talking about 47 out of something like 143 drug approvals. Then the next thing you found was 98 studies that led to 96 drug approvals, randomized control trials. And this is where you dove in and you said, of these 98 randomized control trials that led to registration in the United States, how many utilized a suboptimal control arm? And now the question arises, what is a suboptimal control arm? How, how did you take something that we you know, talk about subjectively and how do you kind of quantify that? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I think the, the subjective element is, is very hard to completely mm-hmm. eliminate. But, I'd say that's true, yeah. Um, but what we did is we, um, we basically looked at national guidelines uh, that were set in place uh, and we took a date of about one year prior to accrual on the trial. You know, so if trials started accrue January 2013, we looked at January 2012 NCCN guidelines, mm-hmm. um, or published review articles in major journals that were written by, you know, experts in the field that list what they use, for example, in that specific indication for that disease, um, and and so that's how we determined, really, and. To, to even make it a little bit more objective, I did this myself, and my colleague did it as well, uh, separately. And so, we we didn't just divide the work uh, in half. We 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 went through all of it, each of us separately, to try and see if we get to the same conclusion. You know, if in 2012 would I be using a triplet regimen for relapse multimyeloma, based on the guidelines that year, or would I be using a, a doublet? Yeah, and you, you probably know, and, would and, be using a triplet. <laughs> right, right. There's always this gray area. Right, um, right. You know, I think some guidelines will say this, and then sometimes they'll they'll list two options, right? And so we had to we had to be a little conservative there too. Yeah. Um, uh, to to kind of put a more accurate uh, number on it. So of all the just let's get the punchline out of all the randomized control trials that lead to drug approval. What percent of the time do you conclude the treatment, the control arm was suboptimal? So 16 out of 96 approvals were based on randomized clinical trials that were suboptimal. It's about 17%. 17%. That's about one in five. That's not trivial. Uh, we're talking mm-hmm. about a one in five randomized trials leading to regu- regulatory approval that probably are not answering the actual clinical question that doctors have in the United States, which is the country that's using its regulatory apparatus to approve these drugs based on these trials. I'll just pick one example. Let's talk about seritinib against platinum-based chemotherapy in ALK 
rearrange non-small cell lung cancer, a trial called ASCEND, which led to regulatory approval. Um, mm-hmm. uh, on the basis of PFS, would it be fair to say that in the year that trial was conducted, if you had an ALK rearranged lung cancer patient, are you going to give them the control arm of that trial, which was platinum-based therapy in that year? You're smiling. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, no. So, you know, crizotinib was approved in 2011 uh, for ALK rearranged lung cancer and was shown to be superior. And so when this, when the ASCEM trial was was ran, you know, started accruing in 2013 when crizotinib was already approved. And and it compared, you know, seritinib to platinum-based therapy, which, you know, I guess it really potentially adds another agent, but it doesn't answer the question of seritinib better than crizotinib. You know, why would I use seritinib if crizotinib's out there? Yeah. So, you know, you know already crizotinib is better. And, and so this is then the kind of trial yeah, yeah. that I think I've seen you kind of also... Uh, debate people on Twitter about is this is a kind of trial that, that maybe adds an agent, but it doesn't really tell you if this agent's better than what we already use. Yeah. But it kind of adds options. Uh, but you know, in this case, when you that kind of opens another topic of when you add options, are you adding options that are maybe less toxic or more affordable, or are you just adding options that are exactly the same? You yeah. know, me too drugs that don't necessarily make any, you know, uh, help patients in any way. So. Yeah, I think that's the that's one of the key questions I come back to. And, um, you know, I think, I guess I'd say a few things. So one thing is somebody might push back on your paper and say, oh, example A or example B or example C. Uh, there's an example here that I disagree with. I think this is a fair control arm. And I think you'd mm-hmm. probably say something to those people who, you know, okay, sure. This is a subjective thing. You got a couple things on this list that you think is, is fairer than other examples. Uh, have at it. Fine. Knock them off if you want to take them away. Then the res- then the bad clinical trials, the inappropriate control arm trials, it's only 15%. That's still a problem, I would say. And no one's right. going to look at this list and be able to say every single one of these was appropriate. And the reason they won't is because they're not appropriate. I think uh, you know, I think you found right. uh, uh, you know, an empirical way, although subjective, to make a best call about these things. And I happen to agree with you. Um, but you know, I understand this is like not measuring your height. This is like deciding what color shirt someone's wearing uh, there's a bit of subjectivity to it people weigh it's blue green or is it green or is it blue okay something like that um right so that's the first thing else else concede the next thing i'd say is somebody might say well you can't blame the fda they don't have a comparative effectiveness statute they don't have the regulatory authority to say is your new drug better than the other new drug coming to market they can only say uh is your new drug safe and efficacious. Does it have efficacy? That's their legal authority. But you Mm -hmm. and I both know that here too there's some subjectivity because comparative effectiveness is one new kidney cancer drug better than another kidney cancer drug. That's an authority they don't have. But an authority they do have is to say a drug is effective, you have to prove it is effective beyond the available standard of care therapy in a nation. It is unethical to deprive people of a standard of care to ask if a drug is effective. For instance, let's take an extreme example. Is an ALK inhibitor more effective than bloodletting? Well, probably yes, for ALK rearranged lung cancer, but you wouldn't have a randomized trial with bloodletting in the control arm. Somebody might say, well, bloodletting was the standard of care in 17 diggity two, uh, when George Washington made, you know, when somebody had ALK rearranged lung cancer, but you would say no. 
You cannot run a trial where the control arm is not current standard of care. That's an unethical trial. So the FDA does have the regulatory authority to say what is an acceptable standard of care. And what we find is, as in the chlorambucil example, is they tend to be broad and say it could be A or B or C. And the industry tends to sniff out the weakest drug and run a head-to-head trial against that. And if that's ibrutinib against chlorambucil, ofatumab against chlorambucil, any drug under the sun against obinutuzumab, chlorambucil versus chlorambucil, um, you know, we're going to see those studies. But the real failure is the FDA has the authority to say, look, in the chlorambucil example, no one is actually using this as monotherapy. You pointed out your attendings don't use it. I didn't use it. And Jeff Sharman and colleagues from um, U.S. Oncology did an analysis of a database, and they found that uh, single-digit percentages use chlorambucil monotherapy, and you worry there might be some coding error in the data set. That's why it's a single digit, not zero. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's this legitimate question of why are we having trials that lead to U.S. market that don't test novel drugs against what we're doing in the U.S.? Um, Right. And this also, you know, this, the, there are some of those trials that, that made the list that um, clearly had their control arm determined based on the fact that they were international trials. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, we use something in the U.S. that um, has not been approved in Europe. And, but because it's an international trial, we lower the bar of the control arm because we want to have these uh, people in, in Europe, you know, uh, enrolled on the trial as well. And so... Then we're left with, again, not knowing if this is superior to what we use here. Um, there's one example, actually, where um, the, the entire trial was, was not conducted in the U.S. Uh, maybe had a, a handful of U.S. patients enrolled, but the majority were not, were not in the United States, and yet it led to an approval here, which was the abinutuzumab uh, plus chlorambucil trial versus chlorambucil. So, um, yeah. I think you we know, need to, yeah, let, let's, this is a great topic, which is um, somebody might say, like, look, it's a good thing we have global trials because we are taking care of global citizens, and that's what oncology cares about. And I think you and I would say that that's great. We want global trials. Nobody disagrees. But there are a few things that would raise eyebrows. One, I notice that when you do conduct a global trial, often in resource-scarce settings where they may not have um, tremendous resources to pay for the current U.S. standard of care, um, and you show a new anti-cancer drug is superior to some prior standard of care in the U.S., I notice that companies don't go back to those countries and voluntarily give those drugs and make seritinib free, for instance, in Asia, so that everyone benefits in Asia. They're not doing that. So, oh, so you know, it's often the new drug is just as costly there as the drug that they already can't afford, which raises the question of, you know, why are they going to that nation to do this trial? Obviously, so they can get away with the control arm that's a so-called straw man. The other thing I'd say is, at the end of the day, you know, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, they are tasked with, I think, regulating the market of the United States. Is the new cancer drug coming to the market in the United States adding to what we're doing in the United States? And global trials will often, perhaps sometimes, answer that question. If you do a global trial and the control arm is appropriate, uh, is the same what we're doing in the U.S. But if you're going abroad to resource-scarce settings, low and in, typically low- and middle-income countries, and testing me-too drugs against agents that have already been beaten in the United States. That and, and part of the reason why you're not doing it in the United States is you know investigators won't really consent patients to this control arm. You're nodding because we, you know, we both had that experience. If part, of the, if part of that's the reason why you're going abroad, you know, that's not really good U.S. drug policy. It's not good U.S. drug regulation. We have to have trials that speak to the state of the United States. 
and and then the yeah. other thing I'd say is we have we are also not being totally uh, we have to give something else to the listener I think which is that the reality is drug companies are sadly they're not in the business of developing drugs for global nations they want the U.S. market share the U.S. market share is the market share in the globe it's the largest payer we are paying more in billions of dollars, I think over 100 billion now in anti-cancer drugs just in the United States per annum. Uh, That's the market share they want. The entire trials agenda is geared to what will get you approval in the U.S. And the idea that companies are somehow going abroad for the sake of being altruistic, I think, is not accurate. I don't think that's why they're doing it. Right, right. You know, in my mind, I do wonder, though, uh, in trials where you do want to enroll you know, a certain number of patients, maybe a large number of patients to get the power that you need, how would you resolve the issue? Um, if you, if you want to, you know, either make sure the control arm is what we use in the United States, uh, how would you get that number of patients you want if you don't do it internationally? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess, um, I, I think, uh, and I think you're, you're good to ask that question because I think it shows that you are a very fair person. Um, I would say that, you know, on the other, on the other side of things, somebody might point out, um, you know, a couple of surveys have placed the percent of U.S. cancer patients going on the studies, all studies, not just registration studies, is between 3 to 9%. I think those mm. are the kind of the range of estimates. So some might say that we probably do have sufficient patients to power these trials if we were to actually create the infrastructure. But right. then your second point that you allude to is nothing stops the company from conducting a global trial but making available the U.S. standard of care in the control arm so we can really get a fair trial. Right. Um, so that nothing stops no, that's them. A, that's yeah. a good point, yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and I guess we, we will say that current drug pricing globally likely provides enough revenue that, that you know, they can afford it. I don't think they'd go broke doing that. Mm-hmm. But um, let me ask you this about this paper. One of the things you analyzed was you show in a figure, uh, figure two, uh, you know, does this vary by tumor type? Uh, I'm looking at this graph. How do you, you know, what's your takeaway message here? You know, when you when you think about, is there some difference by tumor by tumor at the rate at which inappropriate control arms are utilized? I think if you take tumor by tumor, it's hard to really conclude that specific tumor types are more likely to, uh, you know, trials lead to specific to suboptimal control arms or uh, weaker, you know, control arms. I think if you take hematologic malignancies versus uh, solid tumors, there might be a slightly more yeah, that's uh, what I was likelihood yeah. that hematologic malignancies do use suboptimal control arms. I think mainly it's because we just have so many options uh, for those patients, specifically with lymphoma, and nobody really knows what's superior, and so it's easier to say, well, let's just limit the control arm to this you know, this regimen or yeah. this drug. Yeah, I think uh. you're right, yeah. Uh, because there are many options, um, because there may be, um, it, it's so much easier to kind of put restrictions on the control arm. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, if you look at the figure, lymphoid malignancies uh, seems to be, you know, maybe a little bit higher than you would expect for suboptimal control arm. Um, plasma cell disorders actually really barely made it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> a lot of those control arms seem to be a little questionable and I think we went back and forth about this because um, they're you know right at that cutoff of they maybe just became standard of care but not quite or a few months before the trial started enrolling and and so you know we, we ended up not including them but yeah but I think but it kind of opens up the question of are those you know 
companies starting uh, new trials, are they, I'm sure they're taking that time in, in, in consideration. You know, they want to make sure they're running their trials before these become standard. Um, and so now you can use a doublet. I think, you know, if you want to start a randomized clinical trial now for myeloma, it's very hard to use a doublet control arm. Yeah. I think um, you're right that um, readers of the paper won't know that we did kind of agonize there. And ultimately, I think we erred on the side of, in every case, we were conservative and we gave them the benefit of the doubt. Almost in every case there, um, right. we said, you know, I guess that was okay. Even though there was a lot of dialogue about whether or not it was okay. Um, right. And I think that speaks to the fact here that, you know, we are trying to be conservative. Um, it also speaks to the fact that there is something, I think, I, I don't want to—fishy is not the right word, but there's something that arouses suspicions in this field, which is that you've got a lot of trials that have brought a lot of agents to market and that have aggressively moved them up earlier in lines of therapy, but they haven't always answered questions that really matter to doctors and patients. And I think Vincent Rajkumar has written really eloquently about just a number of myeloma trials that aren't really telling us what we need and that, unfortunately, perhaps— in the hands of conflicted KOLs are being spun to conclude right. that, say, one proteasome inhibitor is better than another, when, strictly speaking, that trial did not show that. You know, so there's been right. a lot of spin in this, this field. I guess overall, yeah. what I think I want to highlight about your work here is that, you know, this is, a, this is not um, a small project. I think it's a tremendous effort to look through lots of drug approvals. It's not easy. Um, it's not 100% objective, and I think you know, you're know you honest about that. There is some subjectivity here. I think there will be pushback on a few of these things. But again, I, I urge people who push back to realize that there's a forest in their trees. And you, know, you can disagree with one or two or three or four examples, but you're not really disagreeing with what I think you're showing, which is that this is, this is a phenomenon that is occurring not infrequently and that we need to kind of tackle. Um, okay. And I think that that's the virtue. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think there are a few uh, few points I want to add um, that I think maybe some of the reasons why we have those suboptimal control arms. You know, if you take the pharmaceutical companies out of the picture, why you know the FDA, the regulatory bodies are um, uh, putting you know this is a, a specific bar you know that you have to beat right, um, and so one of the questions is how fast is this bar changing? Uh, is the FDA updating that? Yeah. You know, what they consider to be ethical control arm. Yeah. And if they are, how quickly they're doing that? You know, one of the things we did here as well as um, the, the the primary method of analysis is we went one year before accrual started, but then we said, well, let's go two years yep. and see yep. what, what happens yep. there. Um, and 14 of the 16 clinical trials seem to have still a suboptimal control arm. So if, if the FDA is, is not changing the, 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 the control arm as quickly as the practice is changing in oncology, then that's a problem too. Yeah. Maybe if you go three years, there'll be less cl clinical trials with suboptimal control arms, but then there's a problem there. You know, why are you waiting this long? Um, and, and so then it becomes a question of, are, is it just about access to drugs? but it, I don't care if they're better than what we use. Um, a lot of them are Me Too agents. You know, a lot of the PARP inhibitors, uh, the PARP inhibitor trials seem to just run at the same time. Different agents for the same indication. Different companies, same indication. <coughs> same thing with um, the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And none of them made the list yes. because they seem to all Contemporary, run Contemporary, right, yeah. 
Um, but but I think I think those are the question marks, and you know, the the idea of having so many options for the same indication. Uh, I mean, to me, it seems like it's supposed to reduce prices of agents, <laughs> right? When you have this many, but but that's not happening too. So so I think there are a lot of issues um, with policy in general, and I think this just sort of sheds a little bit of light on on some some of the problems with with controlled trials that that. Um, that lead to FDA approvals. I think those are two excellent points. Yeah, I think um, for your first point, which is how fast do we need to reassess in oncology? And I think that, you know, it's just as fast. The FDA needs to change their control arm standards just as fast as you and I are changing our practice, which these days is nearly relentless change because of the FDA approving 40-some-plus drugs a year, which is something that they're quick to commend themselves for. Um, And your next point, I think, is really good, which is that beyond this paper, because we didn't talk about it as much, but you know, as you kind of look through it, we have a Me Too mentality in oncology. We got 20 PD-1 or PD-L1 candidate compounds in clinical testing. We've had multiple PARP inhibitors, multiple CD4-6 inhibitors. And a lot of these trials are run very, very close to each other, so close that we didn't we didn't feel comfortable saying that one used an inappropriate control arm. They all use the same control arm, even though uh, one is a little bit in the lead, and that turned out to be, you know, work, and, and the other ones end up copying that same, you know, hazard ratio right. for PFS. Um, and I think what you're alluding to is what do we need to do to think about, I don't know, optimizing the Me Too mentality? We need to have some balance between having next-in-class drugs, but also realizing patients are a scarce resource and you can't run duplicative trials over and over and over again to prove that, you know, Me Too PD-1 has a response rate in melanoma because I know it's gonna if it's actually an antibody against PD-1, right? You know, it's kind of a moot point. Um, and I think that's a tension that, you know, we, you know, we're, we're not going to answer in one paper, um, but I hope it's a tension that people explore in the future. I see Rick right. uh, Pazder is quoted as saying, um, you know, he's not happy with uh, the drug companies doing so many redundant PD-1 trials. Um, But to some degree, I found it a little humorous because I think he, of all people, controls interpretation of very open statute. And when you control interpretation of, you know, regulatory interpretation of very open legislative mandate, um, you are setting the incentives that the market was following. And then you're kind of critical of what the market is doing, which were the incentives that you had just set. And I think there are some ways, for instance, in the examples you've documented, these are places that they could be more strict. And no one would fault them for being more strict because you have a one-year lag time before accrual. And if they're more strict in this way, I think we will see better control arms. We will see less Me Too. Um, And I think we will improve the incentives in the marketplace. Uh, So I want to thank you for coming on and talking about your new paper, which is just out today in JAMA Oncology, Analysis of Control Arm Quality in Randomized Clinical Trials Leading to Anti-Cancer Drug Approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your co-author, Mohammed. Yeah, so uh, so we go. He goes by Bassam, actually. Um, he's my co-fellow here, and uh, we both kind of split duties with with uh, being a chief fellow in this in the third fellowship. He's actually staying on as as faculty at Mayo here, uh, and his his focus is in in GI oncology. Um, so you know he's interested in evidence based medicine and. Um, has worked uh, on on multiple systematic reviews and meta analyses in the group with uh, with the group in Rochester. So that's fantastic. Um, you know, uh, I've learned a lot from him. Oh wow, that's great. Well, Talal, thank you so much for coming on plenary session.
Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And I really want to thank you for for helping out with this project and 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 bringing you know your your way of analyzing things uh, in here because I don't think we could have done it really without without your help. So uh, thank thanks you. so much. And I'll be I'll have the check mailed to you right after the. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>